morning. So we're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we did things a little different in the same way that we're doing them today. So how different is it? But uh, a couple of weeks ago, we actually, I, I spoke, we did music, I spoke, we did music, I spoke, we did music. And part of the point of that was because the whole message was about our lives being more integrated rather than disintegrated, that our worship and our service should all flow into our life. And so we were trying to kind of show that through the service itself. Today, I'm going to share a little bit, and then we'll do some music, and then I'll share, and then we'll wrap up with some, some good, uh, solid worship time. And the, the reason for that today is today, what I really want to do is tell you a story. And it's, um, and it's got some nice little break points. If it were a movie, if it were a TV show, there'd be a commercial right there. But instead of a commercial, we're going to carry it through with worship. But there's some nice, nice tension points to kind of take a break and think about the story. So we're going to do that. In uh, the Psalms, they call it Selah. Every once in a while, you're reading through the Psalms, and it'll say Selah. It means stop and reflect on what you've just read. So next time you see that, stop and reflect on what you just read. There you go. So that's what we're going to do, do today a little bit. And I, I want to share with you a story. It's, a, um, it's the story of Esther, as it says there on the screen. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great story. It's an amazing story. And I really have two points in telling this story this morning, because that's what we're going to do is just read through it. I really have, and talk through it, I have two points one is, and if what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you, because I don't know you all well enough to know, so if it doesn't, just don't worry about it. But if it does, take it and think about it. One point is, I don't think we read Scripture enough. I think as a culture, we don't read it enough, and I think it's likely that you don't read it enough. Now, again, if that doesn't apply to you, just let that go. But one of the reasons we don't read it enough is because we've convinced, been convinced by experts that it's boring, that there's just not a lot there. And I don't think it's boring at all. I think it's amazing and fantastic. And so part of the reason I want to go through Esther is so you can get a sense of the drama and the humor. It is one of the funniest things I've ever read. The, the, the drama and the humor and the, the twists and the turns and the excitement. And I just want you to get a sense. This is, this is what this, the Bible is full of amazing, amazing events and stories and circumstances of amazing people and an amazing God. And the second reason is the, the message, the point that's in Esther itself. So here's, here's a fascinating thing. Esther is the, uh, it's one of the most unusual books in the entire Bible, and it's very unique. It is unique among all the other scriptural books. Does anybody know what makes it unique? That's exactly right. The name of God is not mentioned once within the entire book. Not, not uh, Yahweh, not El Shaddai, nothing. In fact, it's sort of strange because there are conversations that are had where you, you will swear when you're done that the name of God was mentioned, that God was mentioned. And then when you go back and look at him, you go, nope, nope, doesn't, doesn't actually attribute it to God at all. And you have to ask yourself, why would this be the case? And that's part of the point. I think the Hebrews knew how to tell a story in a way that held on to the most important truths. The Greeks were good at telling stories in a way that held on to the most important facts, which is not at all the same thing. And as we look through it today, we're going to see that the reason, there are some really good reasons they don't mention God. And I think the reason is that they just tell the story of all these circumstances and all these things that happen and all these these weird events that take place. And by the end of the story, you realize how absurd it is to think that all this could have happened without God being involved. In fact, by a conservative count, I count 17 distinct and separate coincidences, which all had to unfold in order to save the Jews from destruction. And none of these coincidences, none of these variables could have been controlled by the main characters in the story. Not by Esther, not by the villain Haman, not by Mordecai, not by the seemingly all-powerful king. None of them had the ability to make these 17 things happen. And without every single one of these happening, the story does not unfold the way it does. And some of them are absolutely hilarious. It's like reading a great uh, Shakespeare or Oscar Wilde script, the way some of this plays out. And it's because it is scripted. 
It's scripted by the God who scripts life. And that's made clear by not putting God's name in. And the other reason I think it's there is because it reminds us that that's how our lives flow. We don't have a narrator. See, we don't have, most of the scripture that we read, there's a narrator who tells us, and then God did this, and God did that, and God spoke this, and God told them that. And then we look at our lives, and there's no narrator. Nobody says to us, this is when God worked. This is when God did this. Now God is telling you this. Now God, so we go through our lives, we overlook all these circumstances, and we just sort of assume they just happened. But in fact, what if God's hand is in all of them? And so the book of Esther makes you ask that question. Makes you say, it looks like our lives, there's no narrator telling us God did it, yet when you look back at it, you go, wow, kind of amazing. So I just want to share that story, set it up. It's interesting that we're doing this today, and I actually have done this several times over the course of my career, partly because I just love the story. I think it's amazing. But also partly because it's, it's a tradition that, that has been followed for a long time. In fact, the Jews, once a year, they gather together on one of the lesser-known holidays called Purim. And what they do, this is not a, a solemn holiday, it's not a fasting and, and repentance holiday, it's a feasting and revelry holiday. It's a huge, joyous holiday, it takes 24 hours. They just did it recently from March 15th to March 16th, so we've just passed Purim not too long ago. And one of the things they do during this holiday is they read through the entire, they get together and they read through the entire book of Esther. Um, sometimes they, they still do it by scroll. And they read through the entire thing because it reminds them of what it is to celebrate life. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to go through the entire book. And I just want to show you, I just want you to, to pay attention as you go. Watch for the coincidences. Watch for the things that have to happen. And if by the end of the book, if we have just a taste, just a hint of the joy and the gratitude and the thanksgiving that the Jews have in, and what they celebrate on Purim, then we've done our job. Because that's what I want us to see in our own lives is the, the movement of God, the fingerprints of God and the circumstances that bring us gratitude. So let's just jump into the story. It says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. Xerxes, in some of your translations it says Ahusuris. That is the same name. Xerxes I is a king we know he existed. The Greek historians record it. The name Xerxes is the exact same name as Ahusuris. One is Hebrew and one is Greek. So if your translation says Ahusuris, it's because they're going with the, the Hebrew reckoning. And if it says Xerxes, it's because they're going with the more common these days that we know it was Xerxes. And Xerxes was the king of Babylon at the time. And it says this happened during the time of Xerxes. So this helps us identify when this is going on. In fact, we have pretty good reckoning of this date, 486 BC. That's pretty specific, and we think that's exactly when this happened. And in 486 BC, so what's happened is the Babylonians have come in and captured all the Israelites and brought them to exile in Babylon. And you guys remember that story. Nebuchadnezzar was the, the main king at the time, and the story of Daniel takes place after that exile. Zechariah is one of the main prophets during this period. The story of Ezra comes up, and when Ezra does is he goes back and rebuilds the temple. The, the Babylonians release the Jews ostensibly, and the, some of them go back and they rebuild the temple. Ezra is a priest, and it's very important to him that the temple be rebuilt. And so they do that. This is about 30 years after that. And what's interesting is that even though the temple's been rebuilt, a lot of the Jews have not returned home to Jerusalem, and the walls of Jerusalem have still not been rebuilt. So it's still very vulnerable. About 40 years from now, we have the story of Nehemiah, who goes home to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we're right in the middle. So it's this transition moment where the Babylonians aren't exactly uh, capturing the Jews anymore. They're starting to let them go home. But a lot of the Jews still live in Babylon, and that's what's going on at this point. 
and Xerxes is the king. And it says, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. King Xerxes does one thing and only one thing well. He'd throw parties. We're going to see throughout this story, that's all he really does well. Other than the decision to throw a party, he is incapable of making a decision. He is a ridiculous figure. He is impetuous and impulsive. He can't make a decision on his own except to throw a party. He loves to throw parties. That's all he can do. He's frankly pretty dumb. He's just stupid. In fact, there's a story, not in Scripture, there's a a historian who tells us that there was a bridge that was taken out by a storm. And so King Xerxes executed all the builders of the bridge because the storm had destroyed their bridge. And then he ordered that the waves be chained and whipped to punish the sea. And when the people that he sent out to do it went out and presumably did nothing, they came back and told him, it's been accomplished, king. He said, great, and let's have a party. And that is King Xerxes. That's what he does. That's who he is. This is not the guy you want in charge for things to go well. This is why we better hope there's somebody else in charge of everything than this man. So here he is when we're first introduced to him in the book of Esther. He's throwing a party. It says, for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. He's, in, he's the leader of the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And so he throws a 180-day-long party, half a year. Six months, they have this huge party. And then at the end of it, says, when the days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So all the people who are right around him get to have a seven-day long banquet. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to several rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished for seven days. It's a kager. And he invites everybody to come. It's what it is. And he says, drink whatever you want, as much as you want. So this is is what's happening, Right? This is the most powerful nation in the world. This is the most powerful leader. This is how he's going to spend his time. A big, drunken revelry party. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the men are in the the big, huge, golden-couched man cave. And the women are over in their area having a party. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, who thinks that's an understatement? He commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mahuman, Bizthah, Harbona, Bigthah, Abgathah, Zethar, and Carcass. By the way, remember the name Bigthah and Abgathah. We're going to see them again. He commanded them to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. So after seven days, they're partying, they're drunk, they're having a good old time, and he's like, you should see my queen. She is awesome. Go get her. Go get her. I want you all to see how beautiful she is. So he's going to show her off. Which? She doesn't particularly take kindly to. It says, It says, But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and the queen became fu- king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matter of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times. Now, hold on a second. He's mad at his queen because she didn't come, and he has no idea what to do about it. 
He's like, oh, I'm so mad. I need wise men who understand the times. No, that's a little overkill, I think, but that's okay. So he goes to them and he's like, what do I do? I am so mad at her. What do I do? And he says, he says, those who were closest to the king, Karashena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marisena, and Mamukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Look, it's my law. I'm the king, but I don't know it. Can you tell me what I can do? By the way, last night, I mistakenly said he executed her. I acknowledge. I said that from memory, and I was wrong. You'll see he does not execute her. So just to clear the record there, because I see some of you were here last night. Otherwise, I'd get away with it, but I can't. So I'll have to admit it. Then the Mukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and peoples of all the principles of king, provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all women, and they will all despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be bought before him, but she would not come. You better do something, king, because now it's going to be total feminism across the whole land. Every woman's going to go to every husband is going to say, Queen Vashti doesn't obey, neither will I. So it's more than just you. you. You better take care of this. So this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. In other words, our wives. We're worried about our wives too, so you better take care of this. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medo, which cannot be re- repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes and let the king give her royal position to someone else better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Really? That's going to make them respect their husbands. But who knows? The king and his nobles were pleased with his advice, so the king did as Mamukum proposed, and he sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household using his native tongue. So they say, you better just, just get rid of her, put her out of your presence, you can never see her again. And the king's like, done. The king makes these edicts and these decrees on emotional whims and later regrets them, which is what we see in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. He's like, I miss her, but I can't see her again. And now I ain't got nobody. So the king's personal attendants proposed. Here it is again. Instead of thinking, so what shall I do? Shall I go find another woman? No, he's like, what do I do? King's attendants are like, here's an idea. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. It's the bachelor. (laughs) That's exactly what's happening here. Right? He's like, bring in all these women. And they're all going to fight for you. And whoever wins, that's who you get to marry. The first reality show. It figures it would be in his realm, doesn't it? I mean, this kind of fits. Here he is. So he's like, what an awesome idea. Let's do that. So he sends them out. Now, there's some estimates based upon numbers that you can bring from the provinces and a few other little snippets thrown here and there that he brings in 400 women. Now, I just want you to think so far about what we've seen. We've seen that the queen, for very strange, peculiar reasons that we cannot grasp, because this was a very dangerous move on her part, just refused to come when the king called her. And maybe she was drunk. I don't know. Maybe she knew that things were going to get out of hand if she showed up. Let's admit it. She's about to enter a room with a bunch of really drunk men who are very power hungry. And she was afraid for her life. I don't know. But she said, no, that's unusual. She didn't come. Who made that happen? Think about it. 
So then when she doesn't come, the king is like, what am I going to do? Well, his attendants say, let's do The Bachelor. Let's do a reality show. Let's bring another gal in. So he sends them out, and they pick 400 women. Out of all the women in the populace, they pick 400, and one of them, as we're about to see, is a gal named Esther. Who made that happen? Hmm, interesting. It says, now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordechai. Mordechai. Everybody say Mordechai. Good. I'm going to say Mordecai from now on because that's hard on me. But we all know how to say it. Named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So Nebuchadnezzar was the first guy, he, the first main guy who came in and really grabbed everybody from Israel. You guys are probably familiar with the name from the story of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, unlike uh, Xerxes, was a pretty smart guy. He was brutal. He was cruel. He was pretty smart. And he, he took over a lot of the world because he was that smart. He was very good at what he did. But he also did it, God tells us, because God wanted them to. Because God decreed that the Babylonians were going to judge the Israelites, and that's why they were brought into exiles, because God had said this would happen. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, here's a little tidbit as we're talking about the reading Scripture and the importance of it. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar wrote one chapter in Scripture? In the book of Daniel, one of the chapters is in first person, and it's by Nebuchadnezzar. Find it and read it. It's amazing. It's kind of interesting. Never would have thought that a Babylonian king would write one of the chapters of Scripture. So anyway, here we are. Nebuchadnezzar brings him in, and, and uh, Mordecai is one of the ones that come in this initial group. And it says, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah. Now, she's, sometimes I call Mordecai an uncle. It's, he's a cousin of an uncle of hers, which makes him a cousin like once or twice removed, or you could call him a, an uncle. But here he is, this, this kinsman. He had a cousin named Hadassah. Hadassah is a very Hebrew name. It's a very Jewish name. Everybody would know right away if they met Hadassah that her name was, that she was a Jew. But as we see later, Mordecai wants to not let everybody know that. Even though he continues to go by the name Mordecai, he doesn't want other people to know that she's a Jew. So they change her name and they go by a Persian name, Esther. And that's what it says here. It says, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. We don't know what happened to her parents, but there's a million reasons her family could have died given the situation and the circumstances going on right now. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Who's responsible for Esther having a lovely figure and being beautiful? It doesn't say that here, but again, who really makes these things happen? And yet this becomes not just a throwaway sentence, this becomes really important to the story, doesn't it? This becomes crucial. By the way, just for the record, this time, the Persian culture, lovely figure and beautiful, probably means she was rather plump. Just so you know, we're not talking a skin and bones model here probably talking to somebody who had, well, what we call full-figured. And this is what it says. So this one young woman who was known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here he is. He's raised her. He's taking care of her. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. And let's be clear, this is not a volunteer. This is not like the bachelor in the sense that they put out a casting call and they asked people to come. This is the leaders went out and they grabbed the women that to them looked beautiful and had a nice looking figure and they grabbed them and they brought them to the citadel to meet with the king. So Esther has no choice. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor and immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. The guy in charge of this contest, the producer of this show, likes her best. Who makes that happen? 
Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. The rest of the story, we're going to see that Mordecai hangs out at the palace gates all the time. We don't really know why, except this gives us a hint. He's just keeping an eye on Esther. This is his daughter, as far as he's concerned. And so he's constantly hanging out around the courtyard just to see how she's doing and what's going on. He doesn't know what's going to happen to the other 399 women, and we don't know what happens to the other 399 women. This could be a bad thing if you don't get uh, selected, right? Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Why 12 months? I have a theory. No idea if it's true or not. These are supposed to be virgins. 12 months gives you long enough to find out if they're pregnant. Could be. Just make sure there's no mistakes here. So they give them 12 months of beauty treatments. And this is how she would go to the king when it was her turn. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to take care of Shagahaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. And she would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Look, we're not getting into the details, but this is a real story, and we know the nature of the king, and we really have no question what he wants to do with these women from the evening till the morning. But this is the situation. It's not a happy thing. It's not something that Esther has any choice in. This is where she is. This is a moment in her life that is not full of joy. Hey, I'm queen! This is not a magical fairy tale. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm possibly going to be queen to a really stupid, power-hungry, arrogant, uh, conniving, and did I say stupid, king. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She says, I have no idea. You tell me what I should do. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Whatever Haggai suggested, it worked. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted more to Esther than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet, of course he did. Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials, and he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with great loyalty. That's all he does. Wow, this is just think two chapters, what's just happened here. This is just a Jewish girl who's been taken captive in Babylon, and now she's queen. 12 months, 15 months. How does this happen? How does such a thing become the case? How much control did she have over any of this? None. <laughs> really none. I mean, she could try to be winning and appealing, but honestly, it's The Bachelor. You know, how much choice do you really have? When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Why? Because the virgins were assembled. He's here to find out what's going to happen. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept, her secret, her, kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You want to guess this probably happens a lot, actually? The king's not great. So here's a couple of them. They're like, this guy's so stupid. We've got to get rid of him. We're losing. In fact, we know, again, the timing, it told us what month we were in here. This is just after King Xerxes has had a spectacularly failed campaign in an attempt to conquer Greece. He's just gone out. 
And for the first time, the Babylonians have experienced a big defeat, really the first time. And they go out and they don't defeat Greece and they come back and now people are like, this king can't even conquer Greece, which at the time was not a big deal. Later, Greece takes over the whole world, but at this moment, not a big deal. Should have been able to take Greece. So they're mad. They're angry. We're losing our power. We're losing our influence, which is true, which is true. This is beginning of the end for Babylon. But they, they, become pl- they start plotting, and it says, Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And the, when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Some of your things may say hung from gallows. It really is just the same thing. But what really they did in Babylonian times was instead of hanging them, they called it hanging them on the gallows, but it's not what we think of. They literally would stick a big stake in the ground, and I, I won't get too detailed, but they would impale them on the stake. Why? Because everybody walking by would go, oh my gosh, I don't want that to happen to me, right? So they take these two traders, they put a big stake in the ground. Usually, you know, it's about this tall, and I mention that because that'll become relevant later, but it's about this high off the ground. They impale these guys on the stake. Everybody sees it. Whoa, you know, occasionally you might make it larger by putting it on a pedestal so everybody could see it, but, you know, not too tall. And so that's what they do. And all this was recorded in the book in the annals of the presence of the king, and this is just the setup. So just think about the things that have happened. Look at the moments that we've come into. I'm going to pray really quickly, and we're going to worship some, and then we'll, we'll continue with our story after that. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're in control. I thank you that in our lives, when we don't see your name and we don't see the narration, that we can know you're still there. I thank you for the story of Esther, the things we're going to learn, the things we're going to see uh, as, as it moves forward, Lord, to see how you've set everything up from the beginning, Lord, even, even going back to Nebuchadnezzar that all these things are unfolding in a way which shows that you are great and you are awesome. Today, Lord, we want to experience joy. We want to, we want to have some fun, but mostly we want to experience the joy of knowing that you are in control and you are a God that desires good things, Lord, that you are gracious to us and you haven't lost us. You haven't lost track of us. Hadassah was just a girl, just a Jewish girl. Nobody special, Lord. Nobody of any merit, just a Jewish girl. And yet, Lord, you made her queen and it was you that did it. And you brought her forward, and you used her in mighty ways. And Lord, we pray as we worship this morning and as we complete this story in a little bit, that you would remind us of our own lives, Lord, that you are the scripter. You are moving the pieces and pulling the strings, and you have great plans, Lord. You have a role and a place for us. Our God is able. He's greater. He's stronger. The beginning of chapter 3, you guys can have a seat if you'd like. The beginning of chapter 3 starts with the phrase, after these events. What we just looked at is just the beginning. This this, this amazing event, this amazing occurrence that we're told about without mentioning God because we start to see how amazing it is if you think this just happened randomly. This amazing occurrence of this young Jewish girl becoming queen is just the beginning. And it's, there's a bigger plan or, or a bigger incident that's going to happen, which as we read about it has to be a plan. And Mordecai acknowledges it's a plan in the course of the text as we go. Now this is amazing because here we have this story, we have this Young girl who's now become queen. It's a little bit like a Disney princess story, as someone was pointing out to me earlier today. But what does every really not very smart Disney king always have that gets him into trouble? A Jafar. A a, a counselor who's just evil. And in this case, he's crazy. He's obsessed. Let's read. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman. Son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So here's this guy, Haman. He's like, you are the best. Another little tidbit for those of you who like to do your research. It says he's an Agagite. means he's an Amalekite. Go back to read about the story of Saul. Not Saul in the New Testament, but King Saul in the Old Testament. 
Go read the story of Saul. Read what God commanded should be done with the Amalekites and read about what actually happened and see how that follows through to this story. Just a little homework for those who like homework. If you don't, you just ignore it. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai's hanging out at the king's gate, right? He just happens to be hanging out there. That's what he does these days. He hangs out at the king's gate. Don't know if he's got business there or not, but that's where he hangs out. He's probably just keeping an eye on Esther. That's my understanding. But what happens is Haman now is this big, important man. Everybody kneels down. Now, let's be clear. The Jews were not told that they couldn't, and they had no problem with kneeling before kings. They did have a problem with worshiping idols. They had a problem with honoring anybody as God. But they had bowed before kings. And in fact, Jeremiah the prophet had told them, when you get to Babylon, fit in. It's weird. We don't think that that's actually what they were told to do. But that's what God said. When you get to Babylon, fit in. Don't compromise who you are. Don't compromise me. Don't worship idols. But fit in in other ways. So we don't know why, but for some reason, Mordecai just refuses to kneel before Haman. Now, I think it's just because Mordecai sees that Haman is crazy. I think he kind of understands there's something wrong with this man. But his refusal to kneel sends Haman off on this trajectory where he is obsessed with Haman in unbelievably crazy, lunatic ways. Watch. It says, then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. Interesting, too. He hides Hadassah by having her change her name to Esther, but he continues to go by Mordecai and tells everybody, like three or four times in this story, it says he told them he was a Jew. It's kind of like he's like, I'm a Jew. Just thought you should know that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like everybody's aware of it. He's, he's okay. He doesn't care. He's an old man. He came over with Nebuchadnezzar. He's been here for many decades now. He's an old man. He's probably okay. You know, look, I'm probably not going to make it out of here. Whatever. Got to protect my daughter. But you know what? I am what I am. So here he is. They know he's a Jew. And this is, this is the very rational response that Haman has. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. That's a normal response. You make me so mad, I'm going to kill everybody of your race. Wow. Crazy, crazy man. That's what he decides, though. Right now, he's like, I'm going to kill everybody, and I can do it because I'm smarter than the king, and I have his ear. And he's right about both those things, most likely. He just also happens to be crazy. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month, and the lot fell in the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Why on earth, if you're going to kill all the Jews, do you cast a lot to decide when? But he does. Here, let's find out. Oh, darn, it's not for a while yet. Now, why did that happen? You know, he could have just gone to King Xerxes and said, go kill him now. Probably would have been done. But no, he goes through this whole thing of casting a lot so it happens later. So there's time for God to do what God wants to do. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. They are weird and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. This is all complete lie. Really, Haman's just insulted. Remember where this started? He just is insulted. That's all. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administration for the royal treasury. He's going to bribe the king to kill all the Jews. What in the world? Here, I'll give you 10,000 like the king needs it, but I'm going to give you money. I want you to kill all the Jews. 
So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman. Do with the people as you please. He's dumb. He doesn't care. He doesn't know what he's saying. He's just like, whatever. Here's my ring. You're in charge. Kill people, don't kill people. Whatever. In fact, there's evidence the king doesn't even remember he made this edict later. You want to guess he was drunk? That's my guess. I'm guessing he was drunk most of the time. He's like, whatever. Get to the next party. Go kill the Jews. Huh, whatever. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, the nobles of the various peoples. And these were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring, which Haman has. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's province with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate. (laughs) How's this for literally overkill in a law? Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Okay. All the Jews, young, old, women, and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. And a copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to every people of every nationality so they could be ready for that day. So here's the law. Haman says, it's a free-for-all. The citizens, everybody, is allowed to kill the Jews and take their plunder. There will be no repercussions. Go get them. There are enemies of the Jews, but there's also just this sort of riot mentality that is going to come about. Just go for it. Here again, why not just have the king's army go out and kill them? Would have been a lot simpler, and it probably would have done more quickly. Interesting. It's a very convoluted plan. Kind of a crazy one. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And then I love this line. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. It, it just really gives you this picture, right? The king and Haman are like, let's have a drink. And everybody in Susa is going, what just happened? This is a weird edict. And they're just drinking. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, because where's Mordecai? He's in the citadel of Susa. He's right there at the gates. He's one of the first people to hear about this. In fact, I don't know, how, I don't know about this Mordecai. Maybe he's a secret intelligence officer because he knows everything. He has all this information. I don't know what's going on because listen to this. He's going to tell them later. It says, when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Now think about this. He's not only grieving, but he just realizes he's responsible for this in a weird sort of way. This is being done because he refused to bow. Now, I don't think he feels guilty because he still refuses to bow. <laughs> but he realizes this, this guy, Haman, is, is terrible. He's going to kill everybody. And he understands this may be part of God's judgment as well. And so he's, he's repentant and he's grieving and he's mourning and he's wearing sackcloth and ashes. But he only went as far as the king's gate. He couldn't go in, in other words, to talk to Esther. Because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, again an understatement, with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. She's like, what is going on? Why is he so sad? She doesn't even know, because she's isolated. So she sends him clothes. Stop behaving this way. Get dressed. But he won't. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to a tender and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay. I don't know how he knows this stuff. 
into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave them a copy of the text of the edict, that would be easy to get, for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain to her and told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy, plead with them for her people. Very rational, logical request. Here's the edict, here's what's happening. You probably don't know, but we're all going to die. You have the king's ear. Go talk to him. When Esther, let's see. Hathach went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said, and then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. Thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. It's easy to be hard on Esther, but really think about this for a moment. This is Xerxes. He's not smart. He's not logical. He's not kind. He doesn't care. He got rid of Vashti because he was angry. He chose Esther out of 400 women, and now it's been 30 days. He may very well be tired of her. And if she shows up and he's in a bad mood, that's it. She says, I don't think you understand. Don't have the king's favor anymore. I can't just go talk to him. You're mistaken. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. This is amazing. Listen to this answer because how can, can you imagine Mordecai giving this answer without actually using the word God in it? It's actually hard to imagine, but I think the author is, again, trying to make a point. It's not mention God so people will realize, of course, he's referring to God. This is what he says. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This story is about God's sovereignty without ever expressing the name God. And yet it gives us a hint about God's sovereignty here too, doesn't it? I, I won't go into detail, but it actually says that she does have choice, and her choice makes a difference, but not to the big plan. He says, look, relief and deliverance will come. He said, I'm not worried about all the Jews because God has promised a Messiah through the Jews, and God has promised a remnant will always survive. So we will survive. There will be a remnant. But if you don't work on behalf of the Jews, it may be that you die. So you have a choice here of where you fit in this plan. And then he says, who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Interesting the way it's phrased. You know, you just may happen to be here. But clearly he doesn't just mean that, does he? He means somebody put you here. Somebody planned this. Somebody scripted this. Maybe that's the whole reason you're here. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go together, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days or nights. I and my attendants will fast as you do. Fast? To whom? Pray to whom? It doesn't say. Clearly, clearly they're fasting and praying to the Jewish God, right? But the author is just saying, you know, let's just let you figure it out. I will go to the king even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish because maybe this is why I'm here. For, so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her. And he held out to her the gold scepter that it was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. I think this is just the way he talks, right? Is it a party? Let's have a party. No, half the kingdom, great. But he likes her. 
If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, interesting that she invites Haman along, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Look, it is the most favorable moment. Everything is in place. Haman is there. The king is there. He's all giddy. He's like, you can have anything you want, half the kingdom. This is the moment. And yet she doesn't. And I don't think it's fear at this moment. She's already made this decision. She's already started the ball rolling. Now is a good time. The fear isn't a big deal at this point. She hesitates because God says, not yet. How weird. How weird. Here she is, and God brought her to this place, and then he's like, wait, not yet. doesn't say that in here, but it's the only thing that makes sense because the events that occur between tonight and the next night are hilarious and amazing and coincidental and necessary. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me in favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to a banquet I will prepare for them. Now, it's pretty safe to assume that if you invite the king to a banquet, he's going to come. Right? She's, she's, she's pretty smart. <laughs> she's like, let's have another banquet. King's like, all righty. I'll be there. <laughs> then I will answer the king's question. So Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits. Why? Because he's just been invited to the king and the queen's banquet two days in a row. He's feeling special. He's feeling pumped up. His whole obsession is about being respected, right? Mordecai didn't respect him. That made him mad. But the king and queen respect him. He's feeling really good. You'd think that would be enough. You'd think he could walk by Mordecai now and go, who cares about you? King and queen love me. But watch what happens. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. It's like it's an effort not to just kill him right then. You know, there is a corollary, and I won't go into detail about this, but just think about it. We are, there's a scripture that says, if God is for us, we sang it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And yet, we get all concerned about the people that don't like us, don't we? We get all concerned about the little petty things that people throw in here. That's, that's what's happening here. And we're going, how stupid? Well, think about it. Calling together, and what do you do when you're feeling depressed? You call the people together who will affirm you, and you tell them how great you are. That's what Haman does. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated them above the other nobles' officials. And that's not all, Haman said. I am the only person Queen Esther invited. Now, he doesn't know why, but I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But this all gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. And his wife's rash, and all his friends said to him, have a pole set up, reaching a height of 50 cubits, 75 feet tall, seven and a half stories high, one of those poles. What? Why? This is overkill. This is Haman. This is what you do. Everyone will see it, right? 50 cubits high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the pole set up. So here's where the story heats up. Haman, it's the middle of the night. He goes home. It's the evening. He talks to his friends. They're like, what you should do is you should build this really huge tall pole, which is going to take some carpentry. It's going to take some time. It's going to make some noise. Build this really big pole, right? And go to the king first thing in the morning and say, I'd like to take Mordecai and put him on that. The king loves you. He'll do whatever you want. And Haman's like, yeah, yeah. Why should I wait for that day to kill the Jews? We'll just get Mordecai tomorrow. So he starts building this really big thing in the middle of the night. And I don't know if this is true, but the very next verse says, that night the king could not sleep. 
I don't know why not, but could it be because someone's building a really huge gallows right outside? I love the thought that Haman is like building this gallows and the king's like, man, it's noisy out there. Can't sleep. So it says he asked the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. He wants to hear how great he is. That's really all he's asking for, you know? I'm bored. Someone read to me about how wonderful I am. Oh, my great conquest. Don't read about that Greek thing. That, that, let that go. But read something else. <laughs> and it was found recorded there, and the guy just happens to read. Out of all the history, he happens to grab this one story just coincidentally. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So picture it in your mind like a movie. Outside there's the carpentry of Haman building a post to impale Mordecai on and inside the king's listening to a story about how Mordecai saved his life. What a coincidence. And it says, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. They're like, you know, it doesn't look like we did anything. How weird. Surprised you didn't throw him a party. The king said, who is in the court? I love this. So now Haman's finished building it. It's early in the morning. They've been reading all night. Haman's been building all night. He comes into the court. What's he coming in to say? Hey, let's kill Mordecai. That's what he's coming in to say. Hey, I just built this great thing. Let's kill Mordecai. At the same moment, the king is saying, who's in the court? I'm looking for someone to honor honor Mordecai. Who's here? So they say, well, Haman is standing in the court. Oh, bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, and it's like just on his lips, right? He's like, Let's kill Mordecai. It's just about to come out. But the king interrupts him. The king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? And the only thing Haman wants to talk about more than killing Mordecai is how great he is. So he assumes the king's asking about him. It says, now Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, and he gives the king exactly what he would want because he thinks it's for him, right? So what does he want? He wants respect. He wants reputation. He says, for the man who the king delights to honor, have him bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden with a royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on a horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. It's all coming together for Mordecai. I mean, for Haman, but not the way he thinks it is. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew. How do you like that? He doesn't even just say Mordecai. He's like Mordecai the Jew. This tells me he doesn't even remember the edict he made, right? Because you think one of the first things he would be saying is, wait, we're killing the Jews and this is, more, oh, this is not good. That he forgets. But can you imagine Haman at this moment? He's like, let's get, what? He says, go do it for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate because that's all he does these days. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. <laughs> He's like, oh, if I could just could have just not been so eager, you know? <laughs> just a little more humility. Just like, ah, oh, just, just be nice to him. You know, no, he had to be very specific and detailed precisely because he thought it was for him. And he has to do all these things. Can you not see God laughing? I mean, really, can you not see God just going, oh, man, you walked into that one. You know, it's just, here it is. So Haman got the robe and the horse, and he robed Mordecai, and he led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Look, Mordecai has no fear. Can you imagine Mordecai doesn't taunt at least a little during this process? I don't know. Mordecai's like, I have no idea what's going on, but this is hilarious. You know, he's like, oh, Haman, imagine this. I'm on the horse, and you're walking in front of me. You know, you're honoring me. 
Isn't that amazing? <laughs> oh, this must have been terribly humiliating, outrageously humiliating for Haman. In front of everybody, all his friends and his, that he just boasted about, he was going to kill Mordecai and hear what is, he, what is he doing this morning instead of impaling Mordecai. After, afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief, and he told Zeresh and his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, <laughs> I love this, his advisors, oh, good, go get him, go kill him. And now they're like, ooh, you're so in trouble. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Interesting. What does that really mean? Because they serve the Jewish God. And the Jewish God is not on your side at this moment. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Well, at least he's got this to look forward to. <laughs> so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. That's my petition. The king's thinking, what? Of course I'll grant you your life. She says, and spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. She saw the edict. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? The man who's dared to do such a thing. See, he clearly has forgotten. (laughs) Esther said, An adversary and an enemy. And he sits right there. This vile Haman, and you can see just Haman, just as soon as she starts talking, he must just be going pale. It's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine. He must really be mad to leave his wine. (laughs) Left his wine and went out into the palace garden. He doesn't know what to do. He's like, oh, I'm so angry. Oh, can you just imagine? This is the guy who whipped the, the, the waves, right? It's the guy who executed bridge builders because their bridge fell in a storm. It's the guy who dismissed his wife because she didn't come when he asked. This is, this is, this is rage. He doesn't take it out right then. He just he storms out because Haman is his trusted advisor. It's like, what am I going to do? Maybe there's still a chance. Maybe Haman can talk his way out of this. But Haman does what we have seen in so many TV shows. He gets himself in a compromising position, which the king happens to walk in on. It's great says, Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. He's wringing her hands. He's kissing her face. He's doing all these very Persian things to say, forgive me, forgive me. But it looks like he's just attacking her. <laughs> and the king walks in and he exclaims, will you even molest the queen while she is with me in my house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king. I love this. They're looking around. He's like, God, he's like, I don't know, what am I going to do with this guy? And one of the eunuchs says, hey, there's this really big, huge pole right outside. <laughs> it happens to be right in front of Haman's house. Let's just impale him on it. And the king's like, awesome idea. What a coincidence. They're like, by the way, he was going to impale Mordecai on it. And the king's like, more reason. So they do. Think about all these things and how they unfold. We laugh because it's crazy. It's just amazing. Not once does the author say, and God did this, and God arranged that, and God put this into place. Why? Because it's obvious. 
It's so absurd to think that this history could unfold this way. We read a story like this. Dickens writes stories like this all the time. And the flack people give him is, it's too contrived, it's too scripted. You know, it's so obvious it's written. It doesn't look like real life. But this is real life. This is the way it unfolds. Because it is scripted. Because we have a God who takes these things and puts them together, brings Haman into the court at just the right time. Brings Esther into the court at just the right time. Has Haman... There's a proverb that's, it's, I call it the wily Coyote proverb. It says, he who goes to roll a rock upon one person will have it roll back on himself. Have you not seen that cartoon? Yes, it's the wily Coyote proverb. But this is what happens to Haman. He like builds this, 75 feet tall, he builds this huge tall thing because God needed that. Matt and, and Dale are back. And he mentioned just briefly that all it takes is a piece of paperwork to fall through the cracks. One judge, one social worker, one piece of paperwork, and everything falls apart. Having been through an international adoption, I can tell you the pieces that have to come together, you never believe they're going to happen at certain points. People have to be in a good mood, literally. Sometimes it comes down to that. Is this official in a good mood on this day? Is this moment a good moment? It all has to come together. And if it hadn't, he wouldn't be sitting here today. And what about Andale himself? To be selected among all the children to be part of this family. There's a verse which says that God puts the lonely in families. I love it. I love it. I claim that for my two adopted kids, for every adopted child. It says God sets the lonely in families. He sets the orphan and the fatherless among fathers. He knows the time and the place and the habitation of every man and every woman. We may not like our role. We may think that we're Joseph in prison or Esther at that moment of fear or Esther having to go through what probably was not a pleasant experience to be selected by the king. We may feel like we don't like the way God does things. I am not where I expected to be today. The fact that I would be standing here speaking to Paragon was not on my radar six months ago. I had a, a church called Life Song, which I thought, I don't know what I thought, but I thought it would exist <laughs> today. But God has a plan, and God has a journey, and he walks us through it. Just to, to wrap up, we, we, won't, we won't quite finish the whole scroll here, but just to, to wrap up, just so you know, just so you're not left hanging. She pleads with the king again to overturn the edict, and the king says, no edict that the king has made can actually be overturned, which is a stupid law. He's the king. He should just be able to overturn that, right? But apparently he made that and couldn't. Caught himself in a paradox because he's that brilliant. And so he says, I can't, but what I can do is I can send out another edict to make sure everybody sees it that says that the Jews can assemble, can arm themselves, and can fight and can defend themselves. And what really ends up happening is everybody's afraid to fight at that point. It's no longer sort of free-for-all. So most people don't fight, and instead, on the contrary, the Jews end up killing 500 people in the citadel of Susa. Interesting that it's in that citadel, because that's probably where the fiercest enemies of the Jews were, and that's where the people who still tried to kill the Jews were. So as they tried to kill them, the Jews defended themselves. And it says even the satraps and the officials helped them, because now they understood that the tide had turned. The king was on their side. Now tomorrow it could change again, but for now he's on their side. And it says that in honor of this day, in their celebration, they give thanks once a year 
at a, at a holiday called Purim. It's named after Pur, which is the lot that they cast to decide what day they would be killed on. And instead of being killed on that day, it became a day of great victory for them. And so they celebrate that, and it's called Purim, or the Lot Day. And they celebrate it to this day, and it's a day of gratitude, and it's a day of celebration. Sometimes it's a day of debauchery, but I don't think that was the plan. But it's a day of revelry and feasting, and that is the plan. In fact, the edict is made at this time. Mordecai says every year, let's do this, let's, let's feast, let's, let's celebrate, let's revel, let's enjoy that God is in control. doesn't say that, but he is. Our lives read like Esther. We don't have the narrative in our life. But to remember that these pieces don't fall into place the wrong way or on accident is important. I'd like to pray as the worship team comes up, but I'd like to, as I pray, I'd like to give you guys a chance too. I'm just going to give thanks, and then I'm going to ask you guys, if you want to, think about the things that you're thankful for. Think about the circumstances in your life that maybe you haven't given God credit for, or maybe you have. And if you just want to utter a quick thanksgiving, a sentence here or there, I would love for you to do that. We'll leave you some silence just beyond the point of awkward, because that's how I do it, and uh, let you go ahead and, and uh, give thanks. If you just want to give a sentence prayer of thanksgiving uh, as we go, I think that would be great. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our God. We thank you for the, the, the fact that you are in control, the fact that you are sovereign, the fact that you love us, and the fact that you work on our behalf. We pray that you would lead us, Lord, into thanksgiving and into praise.